Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel, the host of this show, which is called Stand to Reason, and uh, 33 years running now, <laughs> broadcasting, though not always as Stand to Reason. I think that started about 29 years ago. And we are approaching, actually, our 29th anniversary coming up in a month, May 1st. So that's pretty cool. We're thrilled about that. It just uh, has been greased lightning, though, when I think about the time. And people have asked me oftentimes on interviews that I do, and I do a frequent number, and they're easy to do now because there's Zoom things and or um, StreamYard or something like that. And uh, and so they asked me about the founding of Standard Reason, and uh, did you ever think it would be what it is? And the answer is always no. I never ever thought we would be here where we're at. It's just amazing to me what God has done. My motif has always been to bloom where I was planted. Whatever I could do in the place that I was at, I did. Even getting on the radio was kind of an accident. And I might have mentioned this to you um, in the past, but the first church whose threshold I crossed as a new Christian uh, was Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I had become a Christian on September 28th, 1973. It was a Friday night, and two weeks later, on Friday night, I was at this conference. It wasn't a conference, actually. It was a concert, because that was the big deal. You have a concert, Christian music, and then you had a speaker, uh, Tom Stipe or somebody like that. There was a whole slew of these wonderful Calvary Chapel speakers that went on to become pastors all over the country and have big churches, Mike McIntosh in San Diego, for example, and others. And uh, after the seminar, or rather, I'm sorry, after the talk, the evangelistic talk, they do an altar call and people would come forward. It was amazing. Well, <laughs> that building is the exact same building where for the last six years we've been packing it out to the gills with realities. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. In fact, the largest group we had was 2019 before COVID, and there were close to 17, 27 pardon me, 2,700 people in that building. Now, when I went there in 1973, the building held 2,000, just like it did now, does now, and it wasn't chock full. Now we have it overflowing into other areas, and 2,700 students, the same building that I walked into as a brand new Christian, now filled with standardism, people at a standardism conference, and it has been done for a number of years. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's unbelievable. And I, I honestly can say I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not tempted to take credit for that, like this is my operation. I've been along for the ride. I have been had a tiger by the tail for almost 29 years, and uh, I don't know, maybe when we have our anniversary next month, I'll talk more about that. But hey, just a heads up, I am going to be gone for the next three weeks. I've got some other things I have to take care of. I won't go into detail on that, but we have some special surprises in store for you. And uh, I've actually had a number of interviews that were an hour long and were uh, very interesting. And so we were able to kind of repurpose those as a radio show, and you'll hear those interviews. And, and one was in India, uh, one was here in this country, but uh, I had 
entertained one atheist for 40 minutes as he was called into that show and um and i cha- it was being challenged by so anyway w- i will not leave you as orphans for these three sessions that i'll be gone and um i think you'll enjoy it so i'm just letting you know that now coming up next weekend of course when i say next weekend i mean just in a few days the day after tomorrow i climb on the plane and I'll be flying with a bunch of the rest of our crew to Philadelphia for the reality there. It looks like we have uh, basically 900 people of a 1,000. So we're getting close to being full up, but there's still room. If you want to register, go to realityapologetics.com, and you can be part of that inaugural event there in Philly area in Pennsylvania. It's not right in Philly. It's in the outskirts somewhere, but the details are on that website, realityapologetics.com. And in Georgia, a month later, that would be April 22nd and 23rd, uh, we have close to 400 people signed up of 1100. So we still got five weeks to go on that. But uh, uh, the room is, is the, the seats are being taken. So just keep that in mind. Hope to see you at one of, or either of those events. I'm thinking about it. Somebody who lives kind of in, you know, what, North Carolina could drive south <laughs> to the one in, uh, or north to the one in Philly, and the four weeks later drive south to the one in Georgia. It's kind of within their circle of maybe four or five hours drive. Anyway, hope to see you there. Now, I recently got a, um, a note from someone that, um, that is, is doing exactly what I described a few moments ago, and that is um, blooming where they're planted, all right? And uh, sent me a note. Uh, he, he said, I, I'm sorry I can't make it to the, the Philly event this weekend. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he's, he's, um, he, he's doing a class. I have to get home and present on the topic if God is good, why evil? That actually is one of the breakouts that Trip Almond is going to be doing at uh, Reality coming up, and um, and he says it's a it's it, he's in the middle of a session uh, of a seminar that he's doing with two friends, and um, the seminar he says has proven an eye opener for an audience of parents with K through twelve children. So he's working with adults, but they've never heard this stuff before. He says the indirect feedback has been incredibly positive, but one point that comes up often is this. Why haven't we heard this stuff before? Now, this is a question that um, is classic, friends, it, and it's, it, it's, it's frustrating to me. I'm glad when we get to go to do what we do for stand a reason. Um, and others are doing it, too, like this gentleman. His name is David. Um, but it's frustrating because we're well-received because people haven't heard this before. And so they're much more attentive to the issues because of that. But that's not a good thing. It's easy for us because we have more attentive people at our events, but it's sad because so few are doing it. Uh, this is uh, David, by the way, is a graduate of CIA. Cross-examine Instructor Academy, and later on in April, I'll be, I'll have uh, Frank Turk here. We'll be talking about CIA coming up in Cincinnati at the end of July this summer. This will be my fifteenth or sixteenth year with Frank doing this, so we'll talk more about this. But I wanted to mention this guy is an octogenarian. This guy, David, the CIA grad, 
is an octogenarian. That doesn't mean eight years old. That means 80 years old plus. And he's teaching these classes and getting well-received. He's blooming where he's planted, and he's meeting an incredible need. Okay, so I'm just saying, if you guys, whoever you are, if you have an opportunity to make a difference with something you've learned through Stand to Reason, even if you don't feel like really clever, professional, whatever, do what you can. It is in the process of doing it that you learn to do it better. All right. And if you can't do it, you can always have one of us come out. Whether it's John or Tim or Alan or uh, or our Robbie, our new guy, or me, um, or Amy. Amy does stuff, too. Um, we'd like to come out to your place and teach what we can. It's really needed. Why haven't, my, why, why haven't we heard this stuff before? It's because it hasn't been taught in your church before, but it ought to be. And that's why we're here. If you want to book a standard reason speaker, it's easy. Booking at str.org. Booking at str.org. Darcy will respond, and she'll work it out. We try to make it happen if we can possibly do that, schedule-wise, financially, etc. So, But we have flexibility in both areas, and we want to work for you and for your local team. All right? I mentioned John Noyes. He's going to be live on Facebook Twitter and YouTube, uh, Wednesday, March 23rd. So that's coming up in two days. No, wait, that's tomorrow. So when you get this podcast, it'll be that day. He's going to be on at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That would be noon. And it's called To The Point Live. And you can catch it on those outlets, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. If you don't know where they are, go to str.org, our homepage, scroll down to the bottom, and you can connect there. Alan Schleeman is going to be at Carlton Oaks Baptist Church's Evangelism Seminar. This is in Santee, California, and uh, he'll be there Saturday, April 2nd. That's the weekend after next, I guess. Uh, Amy Hall is going to be on Facebook on Wednesday, April 6th at 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, doing a live Q&A Facebook. I just did one on Sunday. Amy Hall uh, will be doing hers. Tim Barnett is going to be speaking at uh, the Bridgepoint Fellowship Church in Texas on Sunday, April 10th. I don't know what it is. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what this topic is, but you can catch all this information if you go to our website. There's a drop-down menu somewhere that tells you where we're at, all the details of that. Uh, We have two new Standard Reason University courses coming up next month. Um, They're going to cover the resurrection and biblical hermeneutics, uh, never read a Bible verse kind of thing. Alan Schleeman is teaching that one. I'm not sure who's doing the resurrection. Maybe it's Tim. Um, But you can sign up today at https colon forward slash forward slash training dot str.org. That's too hard. Just go to str.org and look for training. Okay. It's a drop down menu. You'll find it. And, uh, when Amy and I were doing our show, our STR asks today, we ran out of questions. We did our full shows, but we were bottomed out. That means we need more questions from you. We love doing this. Amy's fabulous. Uh, all you have to do is write out a question in Twitter or tweet size in Twitter. You can even do it, I guess, on our website, you know, like in a mail piece, but you want to keep it short. And make sure you put hashtag STR ask all one unit there somewhere in your question, and it will get to Amy, and we'll talk about it. 
Okay. So um, I have here in front of me a, a frustrating piece, and it has to do with the issue of abortion, but it's uh, an aspect of pushback that is very, very popular in the culture today, and the pushback has to do with personal autonomy. No one should force me to do something with my body that I don't want to do, or maybe, depending on how this is characterized, something with my bodily organs that I don't want to use them for. That is a violation of my personal bodily rights. Now, I know Tim is working on a RPL for that, a TikTok that he's responding to. He'll do a great job. We went over some of the details yesterday. And I don't want to steal his fire, but I have another one that's similar to the one he's dealing with. And this is from a fairly well-known actress whose name I can't pronounce. So in saying that, you might know who that is, but I'm not even going to try. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter who the personality is. What matters, the message is more important than the messenger, all right? And in this case, we have to ask whether the message is sound or not. But I'm going to read what she's posted. And then I'm going to respond just a little bit to it. But I'm going to recommend a longer piece I wrote, 2,200 words. I can see the number here on the piece I printed out that's online that covers the basis. But I want to at least give you a feel for how responding to this kind of challenge works. And I will say right off the bat that this challenge really annoys me. It annoys me because in these cases, like this one I'm going to read and the one, the TikTok I watched last night that Tim is responding to, the people who are offering this argument against limiting abortion in any way, shape, or form are so, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, are so taken with themselves and their point of view. Now, you can't dismiss an argument because the attitude someone has when they offer the argument. But the argument or the point of view or that what they offer in defense of abortion is really, really dangerous. It's bad thinking, and it sets a massively dangerous precedent, a point of view, <clears throat> a logical slippery slope. Logical slippery slope is when you agree to one line of thinking and another line of thinking is relevant to the first one uh, in, in a, a significant way or a moral way, well, then the same thinking that applies to the first applies to the second. It's called logical slippery slope. It's not a fallacy. Okay. And uh, the, and what it, not only the main point that's being made is bad, but what it trades on as a principle has ramifications for other things, making those things really bad, too. Okay, that's the logical slippery slope element. Anyway, I'll read this to you and then make a few comments, then go to callers. Here's the thing, guys. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when life begins. It doesn't matter whether a fetus is a human being or not. 
That entire argument is a red herring, a distraction, a subjective and unwinnable argument that could not matter less. Okay, let me just pause for a moment. It does not matter whether a fetus is a human being. That's a distractive element. Oh, okay. But she continues and doubles down. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a fertilized egg or a fetus or a baby or a five-year-old or a Nobel Prize winning pediatric oncologist. Nobody has the right to use your body against your will even to save their life or the life of another person. That's it. That's the argument, she writes. You cannot be forced to donate blood or marrow or organs, even though thousands die every year on waiting lists. They cannot even harvest your organ after your death without your explicit written premortal, I'm sorry, pre-mortem permission. Denying women the right to abortion means we have less bodily autonomy than a corpse. Close quote. So there is the whole thing. Now, when confronted with the material here and the attitude and the forcefulness that it's offered, this sounds compelling. This is actually a very similar kind of argument that was... um, more compellingly put, more carefully put, by a philosopher named Judith Jarvis Thompson more than 50 years ago in 1971, two years before Roe. It's called The Violinist Argument. It was uh, titled, actually, A Defense of Abortion, and it was in the Journal of Philosophy and Public Affairs. Um, I've written a piece on this called Unstringing the Violinist, where I itemize why this argument doesn't work. But I will tell you, when I heard Thompson's initial characterization of it, which was much more carefully done and much more sophisticated than this um, rougher characterization of it that I just read, and I don't know if this woman has ever read Thompson, I would be surprised if she did. But this this uh, bodily autonomy uh, argument, I guess we could put it that way, is, is making the rounds more than ever today. And so I thought I'd give you some feedback and some things to think about. Now, I'll just say up front that I, I encourage you to go to our website Search for the solid ground titled Unstringing the Violinist, and you're going to get not only my response to Thompson, but my response to another individual, Eileen McDonough, who argues very similar. Uh, What Thompson argues is that you cannot be forced uh, to, to have your body used to support another human being whose life depends on your body. Okay, and she gives an illustration that involves a world-famous violinist, and so that's why it's referred to informally as the violinist argument. Okay, McDonough takes it a, a step further. McDonough argues that that you're, you are always um, allowed 
to defend yourself against physical attack. And, the way she reasons, a child that you don't want that is growing in your womb is like a parasite that is attacking you and taking from your body against your will, and therefore you have a moral right to use lethal force to repel the attack. Yeah, you got it right. The child is a parasite if the child is not wanted. It is a de facto parasite attacking the woman. She could defend herself with abortion. So those are the two points of view that I deal with in the paper, the article, Unstringing the Violinist. It's only 2,200 words. Uh, it's not hard to go through, and a big section of that is is uh, is uh, the chunk out of Thompson's article that describes her argument in detail. Okay, this is basically the same thing, at least the Thompson version, that we see in this post um, that I just read to you. Okay, Nobody, reading again, has the right to use your body against your will, even to save their life or the life of another person. That's it. That's the argument. Now, a couple of observations. First of all, that's not an argument. That is a premise of an argument. But I guess she figures it's like the you understood in certain sentences. You understand the subject, even though it's not listed. So you understand the rest of it. Nobody has the right to use your body against your will even to save a life. Uh, Forcing someone to carry a baby to term is using your Bible, I'm sorry, using your body against your will to save a life. Therefore, it's wrong, the baby's life in this particular case. All right. Now, first of all, and this is a point that I make in the article responding to Thompson, it's not entirely clear that this claim is actually true, that nobody has the right to use your body against your will even to save a life or the life of another person? I mean, you could probably think of circumstances where it's appropriate, given certain things at stake, to force somebody to act in a certain way for the goodwill of other people. In fact, this kind of thing is done all the time. Just think of when something terrible is happening and the police clear the area. I know this is a modest example. They clear the area. Okay, everybody out. You can't be here. Why? We're trying to take care of these people who are injured. Wait a minute. You are forcing me to move my body against my will in order to save another person's life? You can't do that. I have bodily autonomy. Well, that's different. Really? How is it different? If you cannot be forced to... I'm sorry, nobody has the right to use your body against your will even to save their life. Well, then, aren't they directing your body in some way? Well, they're not using my body to that extreme. Look, the the bodily autonomy argument is an absolute argument. If you're going to offer exceptions, the exceptions are going to have to be qualified. Then why in this case are you allowed to use someone else's body? Well, that's because of other circumstances that are of greater moral weight than your claim to bodily autonomy. Well, I I buy that, but, but then that means that this is not an absolute 
that can be used to absolutely justify abortion under any circumstance, which is the way it's being used here. Think of military conscription. People are conscripted into the military to fight. That means their body is being used against their will, in some cases, to, to save other lives, protect us from enemies. And in this case, their life is on the line to save other lives, and they are being forced to do it. Now, of course, maybe the author here would say, well, I disagree with that too. But I think most people have this sense that there are obligations that we have to our community and to our country and to our families, minimally, country, community, families. I'm going smaller or closer because it seems more obvious that the closer we get, the greater the responsibility that we have, and that sometimes we are obliged to relinquish our freedom for the good of another. And relinquishing our freedom, I'm speaking specifically of our bodily freedom. I could probably sit here and in an hour come up with 25 or 30 examples, so could you where our bodily autonomy is restricted for the sake of others. I once was in in LAX many years ago now, talking to a woman about this issue. We were both waiting for a flight, and she said, "Uh, the government cannot force me to do what I want with my body. Same argument. I said, ma'am, when you walked across the the tarmac here, or the driveway, and came into this building, the government slapped all kinds of laws on your body. And apparently you didn't, claim, you didn't complain at all. Now, this is pre-9-11. We got a whole bunch more laws that are slapped onto our bodies when we enter certain places, especially airports, okay? Of course, the government can restrict our bodily autonomy in certain circumstances. Now, it may not be legitimate to take somebody's organ from them, and that's one of the illustrations that's being used, but the broad principle of which taking an organ is an example is the bodily uh, autonomy principle that she argues here, or at least asserts aggressively, is absolute. No matter if it's a fertilized egg you're talking about or a Nobel Prize winning pediatric oncologist, you cannot force me to do something with my body to save that life. Um, So what I've said so far is, it's not clear to me that that's actually true. But it is certainly clear to me that that isn't virtuous. Okay? It's certainly clear to me that that isn't virtuous. If I don't want to use my body even to save the life of a Nobel Prize-winning pediatric oncologist, that's somebody who cures cancer in kids or treats cancer in kids, that strikes me as an unbelievably self-centered point of view. Okay? And that's actually what this is, an unbelievably self-centered point of view. So it certainly is not virtuous. 
But I want you to, the, the, the broader question here, and this is the question that I, that I press in my critique of Thompson and McDonough. This is an argument, in a certain sense, by parallel. All right? Here is a circumstance that is clearly inappropriate, forcing me to use my body to do something I don't want to do to save somebody else's life. All right? If that is completely inappropriate, then when that is applied to the issue of abortion, it is equally inappropriate. Okay? It is equally inappropriate. That is an argument based on a parallel, but the but it only works if the parallels are parallel in a morning a, a morally meaningful way. And so I just jotted something down in the margin here. Um, and this is one of the ways in which this is not like the way this woman is characterizing abortion. It is one thing to say, you can't use my body for some other purpose against my will. And I've raised the issue. I'm not sure if that's actually even morally or ethically sound. But in this particular case, in this particular case, um, the, the woman's own body... Uh, uh, let me put it this way, the way I wrote it down. Your own body is using your own body to produce another body, which is your own baby. Let me say this again so you don't miss it. Your own body, ma'am, it's your body. It isn't someone else forcing you. It is your body that is doing what your body was made to do produce another body, which is your own baby. And that point is all that's needed to demonstrate that the claims that were made in this piece have no bearing on the issue of pregnancy. Your own body is not being used by someone else. And as one had put it, my uterus, you're taking my uterus. No, a uterus doesn't make a baby. A mother makes a baby. The uterus is involved, but the uterus isn't being absconded with. It is the mother that's making the baby. The mother who's objecting is making the baby. Your own body is using your own body to produce another body, which is your baby. Okay? She says in her piece here, you cannot be forced to donate blood. Nobody's forcing you to donate blood. Your body is giving blood to that child. All your organs are working together to sustain this child your body is making. And the child is your child. And to, to, to point out one additional in, lack of parallel here, the only force, no one's forcing a woman to have the baby. The baby is happening automatically by the woman's own bodily functions. 
the only force that's being suggested here is the force being used to kill the baby. It is the force being used to kill the baby in abortion. And so that's why, in a, in a way, this is another lack of parallel with the rest of the illustration. It's one thing to withhold care from a five-year-old or a baby or a Nobel Prize-winning pediatric oncologist. It's another thing to go out and kill them, which is exactly what happens in an abortion. And incidentally, it is illegal to refuse to care for a newborn, just as a point of law. And that goes to the original claim. In case this person hadn't thought about it, parenthood does that. It makes a claim on a mother and a father's life that on behalf of their own children, that they legally do not have the liberty to ignore. It's called misfeasance, or maybe malfeasance. Malfeasance is doing something wrong. Misfeasance is not doing something you ought to have done. You ought to care for your own children. And this is the ugly side of this, the other ugly step. If we buy this reasoning, then what it conveys, what comes along with it, if no one can force anyone, even regarding one's own child, doesn't matter whether the child's inside or outside, it's a child or a baby or a five-year-old, it's in the piece. She said it. If one can't force them, then what are the parental responsibilities that mothers and fathers have regarding, to the, regarding their children? What are they? They do not exist. This is the logical slippery slope. This abrogates uh, a, a mother and a father of total responsibility of a child. So here's the moral principle. Mothers and fathers have moral obligations to their own children that are not sustained to children who are not their own. I'm not morally responsible for a kid across the town, but I'm morally responsible for Annabeth and Eva, my daughters. Not according to this particular piece, though. Nobody has a right to use your body against your will, even to save their life or the life of another person, which includes a fertilized egg, a fetus, or a baby, or a five-year-old, or maybe a 14-year-old like Eva, or a 17-year-old like Annabeth. Why not? Why must I be put out on behalf of them? Because I'm dead. That's why. This line of thinking destroys any vestige of moral responsibility that parents have for their children. That's the only way it can work. And that is the precise claim that's being made here, though the author has not applied it in this other case. It is the same line of reasoning. And so let me end with this. And it's in the piece that I wrote. Susan Smith shocked the nation with the murder of her children. She believed her two young boys were an obstacle to remarriage, so she placed them in her car, 
fastened their seatbelts, and drove them into a lake. Smith's crime was especially obscene because she violated the most fundamental moral obligation of all the responsibility a mother has for her own children. Yet, wouldn't Susan Smith be exonerated by Thompson's and McDonough's and also the author of this piece that I just read to you, their logic? These children were kidnappers and interlopers and trespassing on Smith's life, depriving her of liberty. Read here, bodily autonomy. Why not kill them? Those boys were attacking her. It was self-defense. That was be Nick McDonough's approach. But if they were just trespassing or they're just making a demand on the liberty of their mother, which they were doing, and that's the approach of this piece I just wrote to you, then then you have no obligation to care for them. Now, does that mean a liberty to kill them? It would have to mean that. You know why? This piece here I just read to you is a defense for abortion where a mother has her own unborn child killed. So let the parallel be a parallel. This argument I write is frightening for two reasons. First, it must reject the notion of parental responsibility in order to succeed. Second, in spite of that weakness, people in high places think it's compelling. The responsibility of a mother, and I cite a Supreme Court justice here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The responsibility of a mother has toward her child supersedes any claim she has to personal liberty. If it doesn't, if Thompson's and McDonough's argument and this woman's argument in the piece I read to you, if they succeed, then release Susan Smith. If parenthood is an act of heroism, if mothers have no moral obligation to the children they bear, if child-rearing is a burden above and beyond the call of duty, then no child is safe in the womb or out. That's what it comes to. That's why I get so annoyed at these kinds of posts, because they're so ethically and rationally shallow. Yet they champion the absolute right for a mother to destroy her own child. And by the way, that's not just restricted in the womb. This logic would also apply equally out of the womb. That is the logical slippery slope. Check it out on stringingthevioliniststr.org if you want more detail. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Stay with us. Do you know that killing an unborn human being is against the law in most states? The only exception is when the mother wants her child dead and asks a doctor to kill it. Then it's legal. It's protected. It's funded by our tax dollars. And today, the freedom to choose is even celebrated. We live in a world where a woman decides whether another innocent and defenseless human being lives or dies. But is it that simple? Don't women have a right to control their own bodies? Can't many poor women not afford to have another baby? Should a woman who was raped be forced to carry the criminal's baby? It's complicated. It's chaos. But there's a solution. There's a way to make sense of the confusion. We need to anchor our thinking about abortion to reality. Then we'll see how we can help both unborn human beings as well as their born mothers who face a difficult decision. 
Join us for this year's Reality Conference, where we'll see how the solution to abortion will bring clarity to the chaos. Go to realityapologetics.com to get dates and locations for the Student Apologetics event of the year. How you interpret the Bible will define your theology, affect major life decisions, and determine what you teach others. That's why I want to show you the power of applying three interpretive principles to a particular passage in Scripture. You can listen in this month's episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. All right, time to go to calls, and uh, let's uh, let's start in Michigan, Marquette, Michigan, to be specific. Ben, Ben, isn't Marquette in the Upper Peninsula? Yeah, it sure is. Yes, okay. You're not too far from where I have my place in northern Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing you talk about that in your podcast. I'm glad you uh, you recognize that. That's super awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So what's on your uh, what's on your mind, Ben? Yeah. So. Uh, quick little context. I'm a senior at Northern Michigan studying nursing, and I'm one of a few, I'm one of four guys in my cohort of 40, and a couple of my classmates who are girls just found out I'm waiting for marriage. I'm a Christian, and they were kind of like stunned by that, and they were asking me, uh, like, why? And obviously, like, as a Christian, I feel like that's really easy to answer. You know, I want to obey God's God's Word, and I want to honor Him with my life and my decisions. But from like a uh, to a now I'm a believer, it wasn't you know that wasn't a quick answer, right? So I, I uh, I'm guessing my question would be, how would you unpack uh, the I guess the teaching of wait until marriage to a non-believer in a way that I don't know makes sense to them because to me that you know I'm a Christian it doesn't make sense to them. Okay, th- this that, yeah. the issue is the sexual ethic of Christianity, right? And yeah. with your non-Christian friends, okay, good. Uh, um, the, the Here's a one way of looking at it. Uh, this is a general principle, and then we'll narrow it down. And the general principle is, when God gives us a command to do or not to do something, the command is for our good. And when I say for our good, what I mean is that it fits, it is made, God makes it in light of the way he made the world to accomplish human flourishing. So God made the world in a particular way so humans would flourish in that world. When we violate what God wants, then we are viol- we are doing something that's going to actually hurt us in the long run. All right? Maybe okay. not in the short run, but in the long run. So if 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 we have if we have a conviction that God God's commandments are for our good, then we ought to be able, on reflection, to um, intuit what the good of the commandment, the good the commandment was meant to accomplish, and then trade on that with someone who doesn't care about God. Okay? So, um, so, So, take the one commandment, honor your father and your mother, and as uh, I think it's Paul puts it, this is the first commandment with a promise, so it will be well with you, okay? Um, well, this makes sense. If you rebel constantly against your parents, 
Well, this is based on the presumption that they probably know more than a kid does. The kid is going to get himself into lots of trouble. If he he obeyed his parents, never mind God, we got out of the picture right now. If he obeyed his parents, his life is going to be better. So there's always going to be some balance or benefit to this. I once talked to a a young man who was rebelling a lot against it, not Christian family. Well, I think that one, the father was a Christian, but it wasn't a Christian environment. And he asked me to talk to his son. And I told the young man, I said, you know, I know that it's hard responding to the authorities that your dad, for example, your parents want and all that. I get it. All right. But there will never be a time in your life when you will, when you will not have an authority over you. No matter where you live and what you do, you will always have an authority. If you are in the habit of rebelling against authority, you're going to pay the price every single time you do that. This is not going to be a happy life. So notice I was speaking very pragmatically there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the broad principle. Now let's just go down to the specifics of sex. All right. Um, there are disadvantages to being sexually active before you're married. Unfortunately, most of those disadvantages aren't experienced until further down the line. All right. People who are sexually active a lot before they're married have a hard time, harder time. I'm just speaking in generalizations now, have a harder time being celibate or having being faithful to one spouse afterwards. All right. People who live together before they're married have a higher divorce rate after they're married. All right. Um, people, it is very easy in, uh, in sexual circumstances for a person to be taken advantage of, and the person that is almost always the one who suffers is the woman. Okay? Okay. She's yeah. the one who suffers, and she suffers emotional harm, all right? Uh, because mm-hmm. human beings were not built, just in general, to live a healthy life and be playing the field sexually and sleeping all around. That is, there is a natural impulse to that, especially strong in men. Um, And this is why women characteristically have domesticated men. So they, they, they get married so they can have experienced their sexual appetites in some measure. Um, But uh, nowadays we don't have that. And the ones who get hurt are the women. And they get hurt badly. I don't know if you recall the phrase, not sure if it's an operation that much anymore, but friends with benefits, right? Oh, yeah, that's used today. Yeah. Okay. And there's lots of research, uh, of research that shows that in the relationship of friends with benefits, that means two people who have kind of a, uh, a, mere, a, a male and a female uh, who have a mere friendship relationship but still are sexually active with each other, doesn't bother the guy hardly at all. It ruins the girl. Over okay. time, the gal gets really, really messed up. All right? So I don't know that this is going to appeal to your guy friends who want to be sexually active uh, because they don't suffer as much. But I think that the suffering they still are going to experience in the long run. If you want to have a healthy life, then don't mess around. 
court somebody, okay. whatever, date, then have sex after you're married. It'll be more stable. It'll be more satisfying. And you won't get messed up. STDs would disappear if yeah. people practice that. Okay. All of the problems associated with single parenthood where women get pregnant, you know, and um, then don't have the help of the husband. Um, there's, you know, which is, I should say, the father. Those would all be avoided. But there are all kinds of broken families and broken relationships and broken people because of what happens when people are illicit in their sexual behavior. Here's the problem with all of those things I said. People who are, are young can't, yep. can't see it. I'm trying to think of a nice way to oh, play it. Young and dumb, you know. They, yeah. they, they can't see this. They are looking right in front of their eyes, just like I did when I was 20 and 21 and 22, and we don't see the consequences of our behavior. But, uh, but it, I, my wife was a single mom. Okay, and then we adopted two children from crisis pregnancies. Okay, it's not ideal. They yeah. get a family. Okay, us, but still, it it's not ideal. That's all I can tell you. Uh, there's and people know this. This this cre- there's all kinds of hardships that are involved, and and uh, sometimes it's single mom is just a single mom, and then other members of the family are brought in, and moms can do great in circumstances like that, and so can the kids, but it's not ideal. Okay, moms need dads, and children need moms and dads. Okay, so and this is why, apart from the Bible, societies have learned how things work, and that's why socially they've discouraged this kind of behavior, because they know the troubles it causes. It's the wisdom of the ages. Now, the wisdom of the ages is there because people made bad decisions, and they figured out in cultural terms how to, how to make better decisions in their cultural norms then that influenced their behaviors, and that's what young people want to break away from cultural norms. You're not telling me what to do. Okay, well, you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And then when they're reaping the whirlwind, everybody else around them has got to reap that same whirlwind, too, because uh, the consequences of a person's actions are not limited to them. Okay. So, I mean, there's there's some of the stuff there. I, I wrote a, a, a booklet, and I don't do we still sell this? It's called... Um, uh, <laughs> Something about waiting till marriage. What is the name of this little purple? Try before you buy. Try before you buy. Thank you, Kyle. Try before you buy? Question mark. Try before you buy? Question mark. And uh, do we still have that? Do we sell that on our book? I don't think we sell the book. But okay, we don't. But the articles on the store or on the, on the website. Okay, the articles on the website. We don't okay. sell the booklet anymore in the store. But then I try to go through some of those things, and I I wrote this when I was still single. And I was 25 years celibate as a Christian. So, you know, I had a kind of a secondary virginity of whatever you want to call it. And um, it was, it was, it's reflecting, I'm looking at what Scripture says and also looking at the consequences of this behavior in people's lives. Um, okay. Th- there is so much damage that is caused in people's lives because of sexual promiscuity and its 
natural consequences. All right? Okay. Even if you try, oh, we'll get an abortion so we don't have to worry about the natural consequences. Well, you just killed a baby. That's a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And even if you don't believe you killed a baby or it's justifiable to kill a baby, like the woman was arguing in the piece I just read, you still have a death on your hands. And women don't walk away from that easily. There's PTSD kind of things associated with abortion, I guarantee you, although the whole field wants to ignore that. And who suffers? The woman. And possibly others around the woman. Maybe the dad. Maybe grandma and grandpa. Maybe other aunts and uncles, or would-be aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpa. But the damage goes all over. And this is something nobody wants to acknowledge. So I guess what I would tell my friends is, who are not Christian, I'd say, look, if you're smart and you want to have a long, happy life, happy, satisfied relationship with a woman, follow these rules. And you will be much more satisfied than all these fly-by-night things that you're involved in. I guarantee you. And the statistics bear this out. So that's the, you, you got to appeal, appeal pragmatically. But we, we can do so because we have this, this confidence that when God provides a boundary, he does so for a reason. And the reason is for our good. Okay? Incidentally, since we're just right at the end of the hour, I don't have enough time this hour to go to another caller. I just want to read something from First Peter that I actually read quite frequently. First Peter chapter three, and uh, I'm yeah, First Peter chapter three, and let me find it here. It says Paul makes a summary about living together. He doesn't mention sex here. But um, I'll just—he says, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you're called to inherit a blessing. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Here's what it says here. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. All right. So there's a principle there. You want a good life. You want you want you you want life and to love and to see good days. I love the wording here and he's citing verse 10 here from Psalm 70 make that Psalm 34. All right. You want love? You want real love? You want good life? You want good days and length of days? All right, here's how you get it. Be good to live good. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay? And and it, it's just a recipe. It's a recipe. It's common sense, really, but there's... Unfortunately, common sense is not very common nowadays. Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's what I would recommend. Um, there were, that that there is a pragmatic element in the commands God gives, and you will benefit from from the pragmatic consequences if you do it, even if you don't know God. All okay. right. 
So that's kind of the way I'd go. But of course, the best thing is to know God, because keeping these things is not always easy, and it's good to have some help. Amen to that. Make sense? Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Okay, Ben in Marquette, Michigan, I appreciate your call, and uh, looking forward to my own trip up there in a couple of months, up in that neck of the woods. It is woods, too, and it's beautiful. Simply put, God knows best. I know it's hard to let that be your guiding principle, especially if you're not a Christian, but God knows how the world works. He made it. He knows how human beings function best. He wants human flourishing. He gives commands for our good. And even if we're not Christians, if we follow them, then we operate according to the way God made the world and humans as well, and we will do better. Of course, the best of course, is to, you know, do the right thing for the right reason, to bring honor to God. All right, that's it for this hour, friends. Great Coco for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye.